Hey, welcome to the 127th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Shane Collins and Ryan Moulton. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we've got writer Luke Del Tredici. He's got a new movie out called Arizona starring Danny McBride. It's a dark comedy with some thriller horror elements. He's going to tell us all about it. And he's also got an incredible comedy writing pedigree. He is an EP on Brooklyn Nine-Nine right now. He wrote on 30 Rock. Uh, and he wrote on my one of my personal favorites, all-time favorites, Bored to Death. Uh, so he's going to talk to us about uh, the nature of coming up as a TV writer and also balancing a film career at the same time. So it's a really great in-depth conversation. He's so smart. He's so interesting. Um, I just could listen to him talk for three more hours. Yeah, I, I know. I kind of wish we dug even deeper into like how they form each episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and how the seasons work. But we talked so much about the writer's room and about a writer's perspective on a film and on a director, which we have, we've had a lot of writer-directors on the podcast, but we haven't had a lot of writer-writers on the podcast. He's directed plenty as well, but he's a pure writer and has a lot of uh, philosophies about the nature of comedy and the nature of writing and the nature of making a, a network sitcom. Yeah, so it's fascinating. If you've ever been interested in directing TV, directing comedy, I think you'll learn a lot about what TV producers and writers think about TV directors and their role in the whole system. So it's such a good in-depth conversation. We wanted to make as much time for it as we could. So we decided to forego our catch-up. We'll catch up with everybody next time. And right before we jump into our conversation with Luke, we just wanted to bring up a little thing called our Patreon. Uh, it's been growing really well. You can support the show and support the editors and all of their hard work and help us pay them a little stipend for what's essentially volunteer work and help the show be consistent and put on live events. You can find out more about all of that stuff at patreon.com slash justshootitpod. And now, let's get on with the show. Well, hey, Luke Del Tredici. You are here to talk about a movie that you wrote that's coming out. Do you yeah. know when it's coming out? Uh, August 24th. It's oh. in some theaters and also on demand on iTunes and, and... Day and date? Day and date, yeah. Cool. And it's called Arizona and it stars um, a lot of awesome people. Rosemary DeWitt and Danny McBride. Who else? Seth Luke Rogen Wilson's is in, in there. It. Seth Luke Rogen Wilson. is... Yeah, it's great. It was a, such a good cast. Yeah, an insane cast. And so we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But before that, we wanted to kind of talk about where you came from and what your background is. Yeah, sure. And so you're a writer, you're an EP on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You wrote on one of Matt's favorite shows. Bored to Death, man. Oh, wow. Boy, I love that show. I, lo- I really cherish it. It I was so it. much. I only wrote on the, the final third season. Okay. But I'll say that you are not the not the typical gender or age of a Bored to Death fan. It's really? A lot of, oh, that's funny. It's a lot of like, my mom loved it. A lot of my mom's friends loved it. I think Ted Danson really, sure. like, really yeah. worked for... My grandma loved Ted Yeah, <laughs> they loved were, Ted oh, really? It's a very attractive <laughs> like character and performance for women of a certain age. Well, Matt that's loves so funny. Jason Schwartzman. Yeah. yeah, that's true. The nicest, the nicest guy. And Hodgman is so funny, too. Yeah, like, uh, yeah it was incredible. I mean, and, and that was in true HBO fashion. We wrote all the scripts and then shot them. And so there was a lot of just hanging out on set. So hanging out with... Jason and and John Hodgman and Zach and Ted Dan- it's it's just like incredible just like sat all day and listened to stories that's it's awesome so um let's go back even a little bit earlier tell us what was kind of the first breakthrough writing job that you had I mean it was like it happened in fits and starts I'd moved here to be a writer and I, and I got like I think the first job was like a, a VH1 animated sketch comedy show I was writing on mm-hmm. which was like immediately apparent that it was 
a disaster because you had like a nine month lead time, but they wanted nothing but pop culture comedy sketches. You'd write something and then you'd be like, oh my God, it, like two weeks later, it was no longer relevant. And then you're like, this isn't going to air until a year and a half from now. And it was just, we immediately like we threw out every sketch except for like pure evergreen comedy, which mm-hmm. meant like we could make fun of Michael Jackson at the time. <laughs> and then VH1 right. like signed some deal to make a biopic about Michael Jackson. And we're like, you have to cut all the Michael Jackson sketches. <laughs> and we were left with left with nothing. <laughs> Just Amazing. Donald Trump sketches. Yeah. I, at the time, it's like, I don't, I think we wrote a lot of Britney Spears mm-hmm. bits at the time. A lot of really fun people on that show, but it was, it was short lived. And then I, I worked on a bunch of other short-lived you know and things. how did you get on that show the vh1 show i had an agent at the time i had a writing partner and we got like we got an agent and and i don't oh, hold on hold on yeah <laughs> sorry how this is the type this of thing our a... listeners no like, please are yeah, dying yeah. to know yeah someone's like wait how do you just get an agent well so we i went to wesleyan which is not a film school but like studied film and and my partner at the time and i like we wrote a lot of comedy together we wanted we knew we were going to come to la we like after graduation, moved to Boston, where I'm from, like stayed in my parents' house, wrote a bunch of scripts, so we would at least have something when mm-hmm. we came out here. Like, were you writing like TV specs? Or? Yeah, we were writing TV specs for some reason, like um, of uh, existing shows. Yeah, at the time well, that was yeah, sort of the like yeah. the the norm, and no one does it anymore. But we wrote like a Simpsons spec and a Curb Your Enthusiasm, and a, I believe a Scrubs. Uh, but at a barbecue, my writing partner met uh, a friend of ours. His cousin uncle was a lawyer an entertainment lawyer um and he was very nicely said like oh if you want to like if you do come to la send me your stuff i'll take a look at it and i'm the kind of person who is just like i was like that guy doesn't mean it he doesn't want to help us at all and my writing partner who is very good at that sort of thing was like no we're calling him you know he like got his number was like don't be embarrassed like he he said he wanted us to call so we should call and he's 100 percent right we we like moved to la we called him we sent him the stuff he sent it around to some agents and they liked it our first agent was like a, a, a truly terrible agent. <laughs> he was at, at a, I believe it was then the company was called Major Clients Agency, which I think they, <laughs> they thought was reassuring, but it was so embarrassing. I thought, right. I no, really, it's a like big a, deal clients. Yeah. They wouldn't uh, put it in the name if it wasn't true. <laughs> right. they, uh, it's pretty official. Yeah. When I got that first agent, I was like, he was an older agent. And I was like, this is good. I don't want some young 25 year old like cutting his teeth on us this guy's been in the business and then uh, immediately i was like oh wait why is this 50 year old man signing like 20 year old writers out of like that shouldn't happen like he's there's a reason he's like we are at the bottom of the barrel he should not have been signing us so it was not a great uh, professional relationship but also like you know we we spent like two three years sort of working other jobs trying to get writing work and not having it happen and at least having an agent meant he couldn't get us work but he could get us meetings and taking meetings meant at least like you felt like you were part of it you know right And yeah. like when someone asks you what you do, you feel like you can say you're a writer because you have yeah. an agent. So that I means mean, yeah. you're a professional, yeah, exactly. regardless like, of how much yeah, money we, you're We making. had like a meeting on South Park and like dined out on that for like a year and a half. Oh, man. He had not been hired by South Park was like <laughs> a big deal. You were you were kind of close, though. Yeah. Right? Sure, I guess yeah. Right. It was a meeting to cut out cardboard cutouts, but it, that doesn't matter. <laughs> I just had an idea like... So obviously it used to be super popular to write spec scripts and yeah. it's not anymore. But like, what if you wrote like a insane family matters spec script or small wonder or something like, like a black mirror version of, I do that. remember I hearing like being cool? uh, this, you probably know better, but like, I feel, I feel like somebody 
you know, the, there was the urban myth of someone who wrote a friend spec way, way after it was done. Yeah, I mean, I, I think at the time there was a lot of that actually of like yeah. people being like, I'm gonna write the like friends where Ross dies, sure, or sure. I'm gonna like, what, and we're gonna be naughty and it's gonna stand it's out. It's the and one then, called the one where they all get AIDS. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah, right. I think this, I think everyone's desk was a stack of scripts exactly like that. Yeah. Everyone is like, I read a lot of stuff for for hiring for the show currently, and it's like. There's a lot of very high concept stuff that I think writers think is incredibly out there that they really think makes them stand out. And you're just, and you read it and you're like, I just read five like post apocalyptic comedies. I just read like, you know, they're all exactly the same. They have the same, you know, like jokes. It's not even the same jokes. It's just like everyone thinks they're standing out and everyone has the same idea about how to stand out. And there's times where you're like, oh, just a really like, a really good character, you know, character based grounded show would would like blow my mind at this point instead of something that you're like this, no one's ever seen, seen anything like this. Right. You know, a there... sitcom set in like the antebellum South, you know, I know that four of them. <laughs> right. Yeah. What, what else are you, are you seeing? Oh, I, I mean, it's, it's a lot Post of apocalyptic people, people cluster. South. I felt like this year there was a lot of political stuff, like mm-hmm. stuff had sure. a very clear political edge. There was, you know, I mean, that was, and it's good, but it's, it's also what you're reading. Like in years where you read a lot of just like really silly stuff with a lot of jokes, I, I just read comedy stuff, but like, you're kind of like, oh my God, I would kill for a script that just has a point of view and wants to say something. And the writer has a clear idea of what they, what they want. And then. This year I was read, reading like script after script after script where the writers all had like clear points of view, something they wanted to say, but they just weren't funny. And I'm just like, oh, just give me some mm-hmm. silly fluff like that has good jokes. Like any script that makes me laugh, I'll take, you know. It's it's like a weird, you can't control it as a writer, but reading it, it's like so much depends, so much of your reaction to a script when you're reading it, I find, is based on what you've read immediately before the two, three scripts. you've Because I, you know, I'll, I'll read 10 in a sitting and it's just like, it's so unfair, but it's completely influenced by what those other nine are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's how auditions, my wife's sure. an actress and I always tell her like, you know, if you're the first person in the room, like do what the script says. If you're the last person in the room, change one thing, like yeah. do start, give me something new. Yeah. Well, do you, I mean, sorry to dive in so deep right no, in the beginning, please. but now that obviously politics are <laughs> on everyone's mind and like us as people that work in the entertainment industry, I feel yeah. like a lot of times we're trying to have a stronger point of view or to say yeah. something. And everyone freaked out and was like, oh, is comedy worthwhile? <laughs> right. right. And so you're, you're reading the response to that, I feel like, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it's also just like, it's what's on people's minds. I mean, yeah. ideally people are like, there's no way to game the system. Like you, you can't be reactive in terms of what you're, I mean, my only advice is always like, don't try to write what you think people want. Just write what you want to write. And you can always tell if people are like writing in their own voice or if they're trying to like. You know, mm-hmm. copy something, or if they think that they should be edgier, or if they think that they should be more political, if it doesn't feel like natural. You can always tell. I and think. so, like on Brooklyn Nine Nine, do you guys like try to get, have like let lesson, you know, or like try to influence? People? I mean, the show is like it's a very interesting thing. Like we have in recent years, like sort of dipped a toe into it like a little more we did one episode a couple of years ago about like a racial profiling their their cops and we felt mm-hmm. like it was a story that we could kind of tell from that perspective we did a we had a, a one of our characters come out as bisexual last year and did a, a pretty like for us dramatic a male character a female character um a pretty dramatic like version of it for for being a sitcom that's very very joke heavy but like you know i think a little bit in when the show started that our mission was like we wanted 
we were very aware of it being sort of a, a progressive and diverse and, and a highly representative show in terms of there's like two African-American male leads who are both the people in charge in the show. There's two Latina actresses it's, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, the Andre Brower plays a, a, a character who's gay and has been out for a long time. And we were just very conscious of like, and he's like an incredibly like masculine, like, yeah, like, I mean, he's just like, for us, it's always just been like, he's not defined by being gay. It's not his, none of his comedy comes from the fact that he's gay. It's mm-hmm. just a fact in his life. He has a husband, but he has a full set of other personality traits that are what we mind for comedy. And the, 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 his sexuality is just one thing. And, and, you know, I think for when we started the show, we wanted to be quietly progressive in terms of like, not calling attention to that stuff, just being diverse, but not be mm-hmm. doing big issue episodes, having this gay character, but not having to talk about it all the time and, and do big issue episodes and very special episodes. And I think we were very successful at that. And, and, and then, but also like we did do a couple like showier, you know, we've sort of edged into some showier episodes that are more like on the nose about issues. And we have like, you know, you, you receive more feedback about those ep- because people mm-hmm. notice them and because, right, you know, right. like it's so, I like being quietly like revolutionary, but also like it's really nice when you write an episode and people write little think pieces about it too, you know, mm-hmm. and it's hard not to fall into the trap of being like, people wrote about that one. Yeah. We should do more right. of those. Guys, weren't you paying attention? We've been doing this all along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, is the Slate? audience pretty diverse in terms of like the political spectrum? And I can't imagine it's diverse in, in terms of the political spectrum just because of the makeup of the show and the, and the way we approach issues. But it's certainly like, I think we're not a, a four quadrant like mega hit by any means but I think we are a pretty good show about like there's a lot of kids watch it a lot of young like 11 year old boys love it and also watch with their parents I also think it like plays really well to like young women it's very it's it's like I feel like a lot of the most hardcore fans are women and and also like you know it's hard to make a sitcom that appeals to everyone but we're trying as much as right. possible. It's also a cop show. Yeah, well, that's is. the thing. It's a cop show, so there's sort of like, it, we when we were still on Fox, it paired with football pretty well, mm-hmm. and, and it's played really well overseas for an American comedy. Like, it, it does better than most American sitcoms, I think, because the cop stuff is, such, is so recognizable and easily accessible as a genre they understand that it takes away some of the pressure on that comedy normally faces when it gets translated where you... But, you know, the, the intricacies of language get lost and jokes don't really play and right. cultural norms aren't the same. And so a lot of the sort of behavior, like small behavioral observations just don't translate cross-culturally. But sort of jokes about about how like about New York cops, like everyone kind of gets it. Sure. Right. I think also that. you guys probably do. A, you do a great job of like diversifying the type of jokes that you do. So it's super dense, but also like there's wordier, more cerebral stuff and then a pratfall in the same scene. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely like part of it. A part of the success overseas is like, you know, Andy Samberg's got a big goofy face and Terry Crews looks like a superhero and they're like, they're big physical, you know, they're both like really gifted physical comedians as well as, you know, some of the like, like you say, more wordier jokes. And we do try to like, just as writers, it's nice because we can do Sometimes we're an action comedy. Sometimes we're an mm-hmm. office place comedy. We've had this huge romantic comedy sort of like um, bent throughout like th- that's come and gone and, and we can be different things. And, mm-hmm. and you do find like different sections of the audience really respond to one or the other. But for us as writers, it's a way of keeping it not so boring now that we've done 120 of them. Right. In the midst of all this 120 episodes, so you've been on since... The, season one, yeah. I didn't. Uh, one. The pilot was created by Mike Schur and, and Dan Gore, and then I came on for 
episode two in 2013. Yeah. Wow. So special, that's like a, that's a long run. Like there's not that many shows that get to do that now. No, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, we got canceled and then uncanceled last year, but even then <laughs> it was like uh, when we got canceled, it was like, it couldn't be that upset at Fox. It was like, right. they'd let us make 112 of them for five years. It was like this amazing opportunity. Right. And I felt like, you know, you wanted to keep making them, but also like we got to do what no one gets to do, which is just, you know, stay employed and <laughs> make money while doing something good. Buy a house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Have some kids maybe. Um, have some so, twins. Why yeah. not? Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, so what, what was your, role specifically on episode two like where were you in the packing order i guess is what i'm saying uh i mean i was you know the, the tv writing credits are a boring like a boringly complicated thing but i came on as a co-executive producer which is sort of the highest level you know executive producers in tv are that's the job you you aspire to and like movies where it's often just money people or right or you know hangers on um but Co, co-EP is usually the, the highest level you get to as a writer unless you're, it's either your show or you're running things. Um, and so I came on with a lot of other, like uh, a couple other co-EPs who are at the same level. And then Mike and Dan, the two guys who created the show were there. You know, it was a small staff then and mm-hmm. they knew some of the writers, they didn't know a lot of us. And we, it, it, it's a very stressful I'd say the beginning of a show is really stressful, not just because you don't know what your you don't know what the show is, and every time you start a script, you're like, I don't know what any of these characters' core mm-hmm. dynamics are. I don't know what any of their core jokes are. I don't know who they are. We didn't know. We aren't super familiar with the actors. You know, you're starting right, the show, and, right. and you have you don't know what they can do. Even yeah, yeah if you yeah. haven't been on set for the pilot, you have no sense of you right. know. It's like Andy Samberg and Audrey Bauer you can write for, but we had like these uh, Stephanie Beatrice and Melissa Fumero who were like relative unknowns or at least unknowns to us, and you're just like. I don't know. We'll just try something. And then, and then six weeks later, when they finally get, when we start finally in production, you'll see them do it. And you're like, Oh, they'd be better doing something completely different than what we wrote. And you have to adjust. But the start is also like TV is very collaborative and, and writing staff is, is, you know, you work together intensely as a, as a team of writers, which is great, but it's also at the beginning of a show, everyone is like, trying to make friends and trying to work together, but also like subtly, I think jockeying for position and you sure. want to sort of make sure that your voice gets heard and make sure that you like stand out and you want to, you know, because roles can kind of like calcify quickly. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think Mike and Dan who run the show are pretty good at not letting that happen, but there are shows where everyone gets locked into being like, you do this one thing, that's right. what you do. And that's what you're going to do for as long as the show is on the air is you're going to, you're going to break story or you're going to be a joke person or mm-hmm. you're going to, you know, you're going to like sit on the sidelines and no one's going to listen to what you say. Um, but so there's like, it's always a little at the start. I think it can be like a, a little agitating. <laughs> but so it's day one, the pilot got picked up. You're in the writer's room. You're all together. What do you talk about? Like, do you know how, what the season is yet? No, I mean, we never have any idea. Like, and Mike and Dan, Mike sure who, who came from the office, who created parks and rec, has now created the good place. Um, you know, I think one experience that he had on, on for people who love sitcoms, like, you know, the office, the American office started as a very different show than it mm-hmm. ended up being. The first six were much closer to the British one. Michael Scott, Steve Carell's character was, had a lot harsher of an edge. And I think they sort of found ways to soften it. And the show really took off when they were able to, to tweak the tone a little bit and, and maybe, you know, tone down some of the contempt that, 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 they had for their 
lead character, and I think similarly Parks and Rec, you know, I think I think Leslie Nope, Amy Poehler's character started as more of she wasn't sure. a villain, but she was sort of the butt of jokes right. a little bit. And and I think that show sort of found itself. I always say uh, Leslie Nope's flaws that she's great at everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like her took, enthusiasm is the problem. It took, you know, it, it took a little while to find that. And I think they were, they had gone and wedded to this, like the idea of the pit for people who love, <laughs> who love that show and stuff. Sure, but, right. you know, I, I think one thing that, that Mike had taken, I think from those two shows was that like the lesson that you should let that you let the shows find themselves. And then if you go in with two, with comedies, with these things that you want to be long running and that you want to be on the air for five, six, seven, eight, nine years, you don't go in with a strong plan and say, this is my vision. This is what it's going to be. Cause you get locked into it. And it's, it has to be much more about like finding the, finding the writer's voices, finding the actors and like what they're able to do, like finding the sort of marriage between character and, and performer. And so I think he approached Brooklyn. They didn't come in at all with like a, this is the only thing the show is. This is our vision. Here's the plan. Here's the first season. Here's the first three seasons. Here's where we're going to end in season five. It was very like, these are the things we like about it, but now let's sort of write it and find it, like all find it together. And it's very inspiring, but also like in, intensely sure. stressful because you, right. Right. you don't have a roadmap when you start. And so are you like in a room full of whiteboards and they're like writing characters' names and some funny yeah. scenes they want to get to? Yeah, and you're just like, I mean, as it starts out, it's, it's, it's crazy because like now in season six, you're just sort of like someone pitches something and it's a story for Andre Brower and we can just be like, that's not something that Andre Brower would do, you know? And and it's immediate, you're immediately or someone pitches something you're like oh, that's a great idea that feels exactly like his character and when you're starting out someone pitches something and then you have to have a four hour conversation about whether that's something that the character would do or not and what does it mean for the character mm-hmm. and it's especially like they always say that the second episode of TV is like is the hardest to is the hardest to make and there's like you know there's this Mike talks about it a lot I think which is that like when you when you're early in an episode, if you've done three episodes and you tell a story, the information that you give the audience in that story represents 35% of all that they know about the character. So mm-hmm. if you're like right. main character misbehaves a little or is acts a little like a little bit dumb or a little bit mean or is, is jealous. Like if you're in, if you're in episode 60, everyone knows the character, they know, Oh, he's just a little jealous. That's a little bit interesting. But when it's episode two or episode three, it's like, he's the jealous one. Yeah. You're defining the character that way for the audience and you run the risk of turning them off. So there's like this intense pressure to find like, what's the right story coming out of the pilot that like, that will still be true to the characters, but not like show so many, you know, you, you need flaws and you need conflict, but also like, you don't want to be like, they're defined by this flaw and turn Mm -hmm. people off. Right. It's really interesting. I think like, I guess I feel like a lot of our listeners who like aspire to write for TV or to pitch shows like wonder how much of that stuff, like they see someone like a Michael Schur sell all these shows and they'll be like, he must know the inner workings of every character and how the season is going to end and how when he's pitching the show, he must know everything. I mean, I I don't mean to speak for Mike because it's also like, I think that's sort of how we approached Brooklyn was, was there was some idea, but they were very flexible with what the concept was. I think with something like The Good Place, I mean, I, I heard from him, certainly the big twist at the end of, of the first season, he knew when he sold it. I mean, I think he pitched the first season. I think that show, which is shorter episodes, and he knew going in it would be shorter episodes, I think that's a different thing. I think mm-hmm. he has had much more of a clear plan on that one. You know, it's it's sometimes it's also you let the idea define you, and sometimes it's how much you know. But it, it, the thing that's certainly true of network TV, 
I think is that making 22 episodes a season is just like, it's crazy. It, yeah. it's, it's just this like runaway train, you know, you, you start and you, you have a little bit of time at the start of the year in the summer to get ahead and you're feeling good cause you have five stories. And then immediately you're like, one of them doesn't work. You do a big rewrite and then you're backed up and you're like, every week you just have to write a new story and it's going to be shot in the next week. And it's, you know, they're not these little like stage plays of sitcoms anymore. Right. They are, they're like, they want them to be little movies and it was not like intense effects work or crazy action on our, on our sitcom, but it is like, we have to go out. We have to like, it's, sure. it's real production and we're just flying by the seat of our pants constantly. And, you know, I think the big thing is that like a lot of decisions just get made uh, not on the fly, but like you don't have a lot of time to like mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of time to, to second guess. You don't have a lot of time to think. There, there are just things where you're just like, whoops, you know, <laughs> that was that didn't work. And sometimes you, you know, you sometimes you're like committing to a whole character. You think you have a guest character in a whole arc, and then you can't cast. You know, casting is like sometimes we know who we're going to use, and we write parts specifically for people. But sometimes we write a role, and then we're trying to cast, and all the good people you know just aren't available because every everyone who's good is busy. And TV, you don't get to be like. Sure, we'll 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 hold for two weeks because right, right. Tilda Swinton said she'd do it, but she's not available for a month. You have to be like, no, we have to find someone else. You don't have time to like wait for it to, you know, adjust. You just have to be like, okay, you know, it's it's even like just shooting, even like with weather. I mean, it's why I don't know how they how they shoot in rainier climates, but you know, I just got back right. from Kentucky, and let me tell you, it is gnarly. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, here you know, for us, it's just like. We have a five-day shoot. If you, you know, you can move days around if there's rain, but mm-hmm. you can't go past those five days. Like we can't just start pushing. You can't, you can't shut everything down for two days. You know, you right. just have to like, you just have to adjust and find a way to make your scenes take place inside. You know. Well, so we saw that uh, you had directed an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah. How, can you tell us about that? Is that did you enjoy that? I did. I mean, it's, you know, the 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 role of directors on TV is, is at least on sitcoms, which are traditionally not as sort of cinematic. And, and obviously this doesn't apply to big prestige cable dramas where I think that are becoming much more director centric and certainly like have specific tone and have real like cinematic aspirations. But on our show, we, I like how the show looks, but it's definitely like, you know, we move really fast. We shoot with three mm-hmm. cameras. It sort of has a handheld aesthetic. And, you know, you, you try to sell jokes as best you can, but you don't get to do a ton of specialty setups. You don't mm-hmm. get to, to, like, be really, really careful with how you frame up shots and how you put sequences together, you know, because not only do we not have the time for it, but also a lot of it is editing. You know, every one of our episodes has to come out at whatever it is, 21 minutes and six seconds and four frames. Uh, the most painful thing about being a, in network TV as opposed to cable, I think, is that you you cut you cut an episode and it's great and there's it's a minute and a half over and you just have to get that minute and a half out. And it's like, it's so, it, it's, it should be so irrelevant, but it's just like, you just and then you just start taking out stuff. You lose jokes. You lose air. The show gets a little too fast. And, and then you're at a barbecue with your friend who has a Netflix show. Yeah, and they just like, <laughs> and they're just like, yeah, they can do whatever they want. I mean, it's it's you know there are many reasons that cable shows are better set up to produce good quality stuff than network. But that's like, the cable is not even the same as streaming shows, and, and that's one of them, or or HBO where you can come in sure. kind of within a three four minute window and they're fine. Right. But directing is directing TV is like. A, you know, the writers are, we, we sort of, all of our writers are producers and we encourage the writers. The writers who wrote the episode go down there in all the production meetings. They do, they're in the concept meeting, the tone meeting. They, they take their, on all communications with, with, with the art department, with costumes. 
um, and they're on set, and they are uh, largely our writers have been there a long time. They have good relationships with the actors, and they also know the intent of the script. And so I, I always feel like, certainly on TV sitcoms, it's like it's a partnership between the writers and the directors, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately the like, the part is just like the writers who've been there now in a long running show four, five, six years, like we have established relationships, and some of the directors are people who've come back year after year, but sometimes you get a new person, and then you're just sort of like, you know, I, I now have really strong relationships with the cast and it's it's natural for me to just go talk to them about how a scene is playing or how a joke is playing. And and I think the hard thing about being a TV director is the cinematographer knows the look of the show. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have a set style. It's We don't break that style. The cinematographer is always there to say, we don't do that. You know, that's like, not the show. Yeah, we're going to be handheld. I don't care if you want to be on sticks right now. I don't care right. if you want to do like a dolly. We don't do that. You know, that's not the look of the show. And so, and then the actors have been doing these characters for six years. So you can work with them on a specific moment, but they don't like need huge guidance on who the person is. They've like lived and right. inhabited these people in such and, real ways. And defined them. Yeah, and defined yeah. them. So you can't like go to on our show, Andre Brower, and like, I, as the writer, don't have any insight that he doesn't have. And certainly if you're a director, you don't, you can't really talk. It's hard to win any argument with him. Right. You know, and then, and then you have writers sitting over your shoulders who are really like keepers of the jokes and trying to make sure that the jokes land because we're the ones who get yelled at when stuff sure. doesn't work out in the cuts. And so it's like, I think a lot of being a, a TV director, or at least being a sitcom director is sort of, is a lot of it is attitude and keeping everyone's energy up and mm. making sure that you're like keeping eye on the clock and making your days. Cause you know, it's all very like regimented and, but could you throw out an idea? Like could you say to Andre Brower, Oh, wouldn't it be kind of funny if you picked up that stapler in the middle of that sentence and then just moved it, you know, to this other desk? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's all, I don't mean to say directors do nothing. There's like, you know, like, they they like blocking scenes is so vitally important you know mm-hmm. like it seems like it's such a it seems like it's not i think for people who like imagine themselves you know like when you imagine a film yourself making a film you're like picturing like setting up the shot and like framing it up and you're sitting right. on a crane and, and it, but it's like right. in comedy especially to make jokes work so much of it is the director's instincts about like just knowing where to place the people because you you understand what the script says and uh, you understand like how the joke is going to play and which two people you want to have in the frame together, which two people you sure. want to have playing across each other, how you want to have someone who pops in, which direction it's going to be funny as they come from. It all seems sort of unglamorous, but it's like it makes such a difference when you're in the editing room between like someone who's good at that and someone who's not good. The other great thing that maybe it makes a show like Brooklyn Nine-Nine extra fun from that perspective is that because the lighting setups are much more general, right? Like it's kind of like big swaths of natural light. You get to move people more freely than if it was like a movie and they'd be like, okay, well, every time you set a new mark, all of a sudden we've got to, you know, light that section and it becomes Yeah, it's a lot more freedom. I, 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 before I I was on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I, I, wrote for 30 Rock and 30 mm-hmm. Rock was like one of the last that comes to still shoot on film. Right. They were committed to film. We shot, you know, like we often just shot in one direction and it would have a big long turnaround as we relit and it was like, I mean, I, I will never say anything about 30 Rock because it's just the, the greatest one show. One of the but best shows ever. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely like much harder to be flexible within scenes because, mm-hmm. you know, that you couldn't really do, that was a show where, you know, you weren't, the actors were not encouraged to improvise even to sort of step off lines a little bit and and so then you you know there's no sort of playing around within the scene and finding something and you know you had to kind of block it and then have the actors be consistent in their motions because of the way it was lit and you're right in on brooklyn we 
it's not a heavily improvised show, but we like a lot, there's a real looseness, you know, mm-hmm. and then we often encourage the actors to sort of play around a little bit. And, and because we shoot three cameras, because we're covering most scenes in both directions, because the lighting is pretty general, I think that like we're able to sometimes like find create these really, you know, like fun little surprising moments within mm-hmm. scenes that we did not expect. Right. And you get to do like whipping from one camera to another yeah. or like, you know, knowing glances, the officeiness of it. Yeah, yeah. And we really empower the, we have great, great camera operators who they're very engaged in the show, I think, because like they do a lot of the storytelling for us. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's all these little like punch ins for emphasis and like we don't, they're not being directed on those. They just are like, they're listening and they're following along with the scenes and they're trusting their instincts about what kind of moves to do. And it's like, they're, terrific at it and I, it's like great how they're not just like sitting around waiting to be told what to do they really like feel that they're part of what makes the show yeah, work creatively and they are yeah but would a director ever say like oh maybe punch in on this line yeah of course like if it's if if you if you're if you're watching the monitors and you you think that you need emphasis on it you totally do but almost always on my experiences when you're watching it I think they're on it they have like yeah. again they've been doing it like, like you know day in day out for six years and they're like so much of what you feel like it like feels right about the show feels like what the show would do feels that way because that's what they've been doing. Right. Um, so you're an EP on the show, which is kind of like the best credit on a TV show. Does that mean you can direct any episode you want or do you still have to fight for getting that directing? No, you still have to fight. I mean, it's like, you know, by the end of, by this season six, it's like, you know, there's like a lot of people internally from the show who are now directing, Mm -hmm. whether it's like our, our sort of like, we have a non-writing producer who's sort of like the, like, just runs the whole set. Who's directed it? Our post-production supervisor is like directing an episode. Another one of the writers is directing one, like, uh, and then Dan and Mike created it off and direct episodes. So there's like, we get you get fewer and fewer outside directors, uh, but but also directing, at least for TV. When you're assigning it, you don't know what episode's going to be what. You know, mm-hmm. it's there's it's same with getting writing assignments, but it's often luck. Like I, this is, I'm sure, different for for Breaking Bad or something. But like, where they're like, oh, that's going to be a big action episode. Get Michelle McLaren, make sure she's on on like lined up for that. But but we're just sort of like you just assign out the episodes, and then you're like, oh, this one turned out to be like a really crazy heist episode, and this one is like two people in a room talking, and we have the exact contractors like lined <laughs> up for that, but that's what we're going with, right. you know, because those TV directors make their make their living going like they if you're really in it, they'll do I mean I don't know how many, but just they go week to week sure. to week, show to show to show to show, and so a lot of it is this puzzle of fitting everyone's schedule together, and you can't just be like push by a week, you know, we, we have something else. So the, the people internally who, who direct, we're much more like, cause I'm going to be there the whole time anyway. They're sort of like, I get slotted in last, I think. One last question about TV directing in general. Can you just give us, um, tell us like a couple things that an outside director would make an outside director good, a good director versus like not so good. I mean, again, I should, I should qualify this as like, I'm talking about like sitcom directing and a lot of it is also just like I don't even know how universal that is and how much is just specific to our show but I you know I mean I think the big thing is like it's a lack of like a lack of ego because you don't get to just walk in and be like this is my set this is the way I want it you're walking into a pre-existing thing where everyone has their jobs and everyone is feels the DPs always feel like they really have ownership of the character the actors feel like they have ownership of the characters the writers are always there and I think the best thing you can do is just be like open to collaboration and not you know i think the worst thing that happens is when directors are 
feel that they need to come in and like put their stamp on it and, right. and show everyone that they're like, you know, cause put their director's hat on. Right? Yeah. I think yeah. there, I think it can be, it can be frustrating cause there's certainly my experience directing it was like, it's a machine, you know, I mean mm-hmm. like I, the show gets made, like the show could like get made whether you're there sure. or not. So yeah, like yeah. if you, yeah. if you have a freak out and you don't know what you want, like the production doesn't stop. <laughs> and then somebody <laughs> just steps in and is like, okay, this is what we're doing then. And so it's like, you almost have to like, I found the hardest thing when I was directing was to, to like stop the machine to say like, I want something a little different than what right. we would normally do. You know, it's like it sort of works to just the actors kind of have a sense of like how scenes get blocked. The, the DP often sort of like knows how it's going to be and starts lighting even before you, mm-hmm. before you stepped in and said like, this is what I'm going to do. And so it's like, you know, you have to kind of step in and say like, guys, 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 I know we all just worked for, five, for like six minutes, you know, but like, could we actually maybe just like swing this, you know, act around here and, and just like reset a little bit and, and everyone's amenable to that, but you have to like, that's almost more that the point where you have to sort of take ownership. But again, I, th- I think a lot of it is just being not feeling threatened and not feeling like you have to make sure everyone knows that you're in command because the people who embrace working with the actors and embrace working with the writers and, and working with the DP, like it's great because you have all these like super talented people there to collaborate with. Can I ask one last question? Yes. I swear it's the last question <laughs> and it'll be a short answer. So how do I you can't promise it'll be a short answer. <laughs> like how, how do you choose an outside director? Do you want look at reels? You have a good meeting with them. You get recommendations. I mean, I had my Dan and Mike do a lot more of the directing hiring. I mean, I think you, you know, the people who are, who work in TV, like you kind of know from other shows, you, right. you get recommendations. A lot of those people are like really established and worked as far as new directors. Weirdly, like my experience of hiring writers is that we kind of get to hire whoever we want, you know, like the, the within reason, like they, they, they want to make sure you're not like hiring your friends, sure, you know, just to like give them high-paying WGA jobs, but, like... But even still, it's kind of hiring your friends, Yeah, it, right? can, it yeah. can totally be. If your like, friends are good, you can hire them. Yeah, if, they're, if they seem professional. But with directors, the, the studio and the network keep, like, an inc- intensely, like, tight eye, and there's often people who you're like, this person, like... And they really seem to believe, I find, in the... They, they believe, like, that there's a real difference between directing, like, TV and features, and sometimes you'll find someone who you're like, this person directed, like, a great film that was at Sundance and they're like but have they done television you're like mm-hmm. well they did a great film that was at Sundance I sure, think they sure. can come in and like handle it and they'll be like we really have to meet them and they'll like for months be like debate about it before being like maybe you know <laughs> sure. right and um, meanwhile you're yeah. like they actually don't even have to be on set and the show still yeah, works yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's really yeah, like yeah. we would be lucky like, to have these people with vision right. you know but I think it is again it's like TV is certainly network TV is like it's there's a big like it's a corporate thing, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it, there's a lot of money and, it, and right. it, it operates on a schedule on a strict schedule. And like the one thing you can't have is like people who don't understand, like who don't understand that, you know, who don't understand that, like we got it. We have to make our day. We have to make our week because right. next week we have to make our days. So we have to make our week because there's like, because the cut has to come in by this day because it has to be like, you know, it, it has to be like sent out, it mastered for all these different territories and sent out and it has to be like ready for, you know, the, the promotions department needs it by yeah. this day. So there's can no start. wiggle right. room. You guys yeah. don't like risk. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, the, it's just, the job is make the day. That's it. Yeah. Right. I mean, and it's like, you want it to be good, but, mm-hmm. it, but it is like, they are, I think not unreasonably like scared about getting someone who's going to be in there and like, and maybe just like <laughs> want to be, you know, 
I don't want to say too artistic because that implies that like what we do is not artistic. But if if right, they want to do thirty takes to get something, yeah, and, and you don't know with people even when they've made like incredibly good quality film if they haven't worked within that right, like right. that context. I think there's a little fear, and I think that they most everyone who did that would immediately figure out what it was and do a great job. But I'm sh- I'm sure it's like every studio has had like one time they hired some hotshot filmmaker who had made a movie that did right. great that you know that like. And then they came in and like just made yeah made the actors do forty takes and everyone got pissed off and then they had to spend a you know million dollars in overages and and then they're just like never again it's only going to be like the same Sweden in to fix this it's going to be the same you know five people (laughs) directing every episode and that's it right you you are in this like crazy intense twenty two episodes a year like high budget network TV job and somehow in the middle of a movie right right an indie film. The, yeah. key, the key is to write it nine years ago and then just wait around. I was going to ask you about that because it does take place in 2008. Yeah, it wasn't, right? It's a period piece now. It wasn't a period piece. <laughs> um, before we go too far, much further, tell us a little bit about what the movie Arizona is about. Um, All right. I can guess the log line if you want, which is something I've been doing lately. <laughs> Please. I, I, I'm, I watch, te- I'm I watch terrible. The, at I watched the movie today. Oh, okay. So Arizona is a horror comedy that takes place in 2008. Arizona, right after the huge housing market crash, and it, it plays out in a ghost town, pretty much of McMansions yeah. in this development, and it, like there's an eerie balance between the times and the and the markets and what that did to people emotionally by having their houses, their million dollar houses, be worth nothing uh, the next day, but um, but it's balanced with this like crazy comedy of people that are like customizing their you know, new homes and with Danny McBride and, and just fun and craziness. That seems great. I'm glad that you're, I thought when you said you were going to guess the log line that you were going to have like a really tight, like, <laughs> oh. you know, short log line. Cause I, that's how it sounds like when I describe oh, it, I sorry. just like, I go yeah. on and I'm like, I'm so bad at, no, I'm just making it up on the spot. But our last few guests, uh, I, I had oh, just you. watched the screener right before the interview and I guess the log line. Oh, um, exactly. Perfect. Yeah, now it's a game. Yeah. Now, now it's a game. Yeah. Great. No, I mean, it, it's, it's been a really like fun, like a fun process. And, and, but again, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's set like it's now 2018 and I wrote it in 2009. I started it. I think I finished it in 2010. Um, and even then I was a little bit like it, it really should be set. It's set right at the, right after the crash of 2007, mm-hmm. probably like a year after. Um, right. So I was already feeling like, Oh, I'm late. And then, it was a movie that looked like it was going to get made for a long time and didn't get made and didn't get made and then fell apart and then looked like it was totally dead and I was just working in TV and every, you know, year, even though people sort of were still interested in the script, I felt like, oh, it's it was a it was a huge mistake to write something that was like timely because <laughs> it was, as soon as it doesn't get made in the timely fashion, you're like, oh, now it's useless. Right. right. But it, I wrote it, thinking a lot about the role of like, you know, <laughs> economic anxiety, it's a loaded phrase now, but on, on like a certain kind of like conservative American male and what it meant to have been like promised a, this like sure. really, really shitty American dream of, of big houses and, you know, hot wives. And then to like feel like that's being taken from you. And I felt like, you know, a lot, there was a lot of focus on the, when I wrote it on, on people who were suffering, rightly so, who'd mm-hmm. lost it, but also like, I was sort of fascinated by these like people who I found less sympathetic who were just like angry and just like felt like they deserved to have this big house and they deserved to have this life and, and having had it taken from them, 
especially men felt like so angry and emasculated and and i'm always sort of like i i love genre stuff but i i'm not super interested in like you know bringing in i don't need you don't need zombies and you right. know, like the world is super scary and you don't need zombies or or, or, or like you know vampires or weird ghosts or or you know like shadow creatures or whatever it's like people are scary and i I, trying to make a movie where someone kills someone you're always like what is it that would drive someone to become to like kill and it's like that level of anger but right and there are kind of like kind of hints at least in how the film ended up being like of kind of a zombie like a wasteland 28 days later yeah and even though there's nothing supernatural in it yeah it's cool but again like I, i i think the hope was to sort of set a real like make it a real structured like a horror film but but rooted in the things that i found really scary about find scary about american life you know and mm-hmm. but again the thing is like i it all that stuff about the way that people responded to this like collapse of their dream i think became like as we've entered into this trump era has only become like sure weirdly more more timely and i feel like it ended up you know like danny mcbride is sort of the perfect actor for but like, yeah. for like the trump years you know I mean, yeah, just, right. so right. it's like no one you can have and you know i i i really love it when when movies can sort of like combine comedy and and horror comedy and thrills and like not in a you know i i really i really like it when movies not don't just like balance I, people always talk about black comedy as like having to balance the two tones and like i don't find balance to be the goal like i want to mm-hmm. I want you to be settling into a comedy and then have something horrible happen and then you're settling into a horrible, like, you're like, okay, this is a scary movie and then it's really funny and I think it makes the laughs more bigger and makes the scares bigger and, you know, I, I, I feel like this weird era we live in is one where you wake up every day and you're like, oh, we're in the, we live in some stupid, absurdist comedy and yet we also live in the scariest time on earth and, like, it feels to me like the right time for... Yeah, right. movies that can get can, hilarious can nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> hilarious nightmare. And it totally <laughs> that actually I had list you know and written a few questions out for you. And one of them was like, how do you balance those two things? Because there is like, you know, a scene where someone has just like murdered someone and holding someone else hostage, and then he's considering which tiles he should use for his countertop. Yeah, know? and that's I mean, look, it's, it's I really like it, but I don't. I can't say that it. Some people don't. You know, not not just in in terms of this movie, but like a lot of the movies that I like thought about a lot as I was writing it, and movies I admired. Like I, one of the reasons I was so excited to work with 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 Danny and and with the guys from from Rough House, which is his company with David Gordon Green and Jody Hill, is like they had made Observe and Report, which is one of my favorite I movies. That it. is just like I love Observe. It's the best. It's it's, it's so, so incredible. But, but a lot of people just like sure certainly at the time, and I think still like are really upset by that movie because yeah. it comes on like it's going to be really funny and it is really funny, but it you're like, it's funny, this is safe. And then it just gets so dark and it's really a movie with some some real anger in it. And like, I love that because for me, I'm just like, oh, this movie, like it shocked me. Like right. it literally like knocked me on my ass. I was so surprised by what it was, but it's that. I, I shouted, oh fuck, yeah. out loud in but, the middle But, but there movie. are people who just. In front of my in-laws, I should yeah. say. <laughs> but I think a lot of people just want, like they want to know what a movie is and you know. Right, but I think there are, I've definitely seen movies where you think it's one thing, it's, you think it's going to be a teen comedy and it ends up being whatever, like an insane other movie. I felt like with yours, because you you have a Danny McBride, he can be hilarious and scary at the same time, you know? 
And yeah, it, I mean, uh, and it's not two different modes. Have we it's seen like him Daniel menace Craig. that way before, though? I'm trying to think. I mean, of he's other like in a um, the end of the world. What's that one? Yeah, that's like yeah. that's such a the the, the, the stakes aren't fear the same. isn't yeah. quite as like yeah. strong. I mean, he's great. Like I I wrote it knowing that like I wanted him to do it. I didn't know Daniel. Oh, really? I wrote it, but like it was always clear to me that he could do it. I mean, the thing for me that I the other thing that makes I think him a it a great movie for like the Trump era, at least I hope a great movie for the Trump era is that. You know, I was sort of fascinated by the idea of like, I feel like since Silence of the Lambs, we've had, Mm -hmm. you know, we've had whatever it is, 30 years of like brilliant, like mastermind psychopaths who are playing cat and mouse games with the, with the hero or the cop and have it all planned out. And that's just like, what scares, what I feel like, what's scary is dumb people, like like dumb people who are like unpredictable and make bad decisions, but still own guns. Like, that's like what I find really, like, I really crystallized for me with this, like, is it not a... It's it's not a great movie, but this movie P two, which is like a, a really, like a really kind of low rent horror movie where Wes Bentley plays like a he's like a guy who he's like a, a parking garage like attendant mm-hmm. who kidnaps this woman, um, you know who he's like fall in love with who works the high up in the in the tower and he like kidnaps her over like a Thanksgiving weekend or something and she's stuck below ground with him and it's like he's just such a dummy in the movie and it like stuck with me for I was like it's a movie no one saw and no one loved it. I was just like. I was just like, it's so endlessly fascinating because he's just dumb. Like, mm-hmm. he thinks she might like him. She's able to constantly, like, outsmart him by you doing the stupidest stuff. And it, like, and, but he's no less, like, he's really scary and he's scary for it because he's dumb, but and he doesn't like being made to feel that he's dumb. Mm-hmm. And he literally lashes out. And that's, like, a thing that always stuck with me. And I thought Danny was sort of the perfect person to, like, embody that because you're like, yeah, he can be buffoonish and ridiculous, but if he has a gun. Yeah. I actually have a friend that is, like, pretty much exactly that character he bought a house in queens creek arizona he was not making a lot of money he was working like in security and i was and he had this like giant house and he's like yeah we decided to go with the three bedroom yeah. model and we're just doing like a wash whatever we're gonna get a pool installed and i was like how are you buying this giant house but you don't make any money like yeah and then the next year he's like my house is worth twice as much we refinanced <laughs> had kids got three dogs bought a minivan and i was like okay <laughs> Just none of this makes yeah. sense. And then yeah. the next year, it was like, yeah, yeah they're building up. a freeway through my neighborhood. And That's yeah. great. I mean, the, the real stories of these places in, in Arizona, like in the exurbs outside Phoenix, are just like, it's stuff that doesn't even make it into the movie. But like, not only, you know, there are these new build ghost towns where they just like, they just completed them right as the bottom fell out. So basically no one had moved in or the few people that had moved in, suddenly their house was worth nothing. They couldn't get out and they're living in with no one around. And that's sort of like, scary enough but they're also like a lot of times they're like built with like only one access road to the freeways that always floods <laughs> they're like right. the, the, the well, detail- and there's no stores like where my friend lived you had to drive like 30 minutes to the nearest like grocery store yeah, and they no, were building a walmart but then they stopped yeah there's it. nothing there and there's like the, the detail that's in the movie i think is really true in a lot of them that there's like they they built so fast and it's like takes the state a long time to be like this is a city it's going to have the services of a city uh-huh, so there's like right. one county police officer you know a sheriff who has to service all these areas and there's no like by the way my friend was a sheriff uh, in Maricopa County that yeah, Mar- for that that yeah term. Maricopa is like where it was the core of a lot of this stuff and it is like they suddenly had like so many so many people and they just like couldn't get deputies right, there's no schools like yeah. in the movie yeah that's the thing they would build uh, a detail I mean they were like the the developers I, I remember reading once that developers would build 
elementary schools because elementary schools raise property values uh-huh. and people want to live there. They wouldn't build any high schools because high schools depress property values. So all these, t- there were like literal <laughs> cities that had no high school and they had all these parent people moving in with young children and there was just sort of like, well, fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah. This is gonna, like, They'll figure it out eventually. Yeah, we already sold our houses. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it's yeah. just like. Well, so the obvious question is like, did you shoot at one of these places? When one of these ghosts? I mean, the movie has these scenes where Rosemary DeWitt and they're driving, you know, driving all over the these empty houses or empty I mean, looking houses. I, I don't want to speak too much for the production team because like I was largely like I went down. It, we, it was shot in Albuquerque um, in New Mexico. No, oh, it wasn't shot in Arizona. That's a big lie. There's a few people. Sometimes I look online and people are like, I won't see this movie because it's another like. <laughs> sure. Another oh, I've movie. been to Queens Creek. I fell for it. Yeah. It, yeah. They look the same. But there are some Arizona people who are just like, this is Bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> the street sign does not look how, like an Arizona street dare sign. you. I, I grew up in Sacramento, and uh, I feel a tiny bit that way about Lady Bird. Lady Bird, yeah. Yeah. Just Curious a touch. Yeah. yeah. I, I, don't, I didn't grow up in Sacramento, and I was a little bit like, uh, it, didn't feel, it didn't feel like yeah, yeah, super authentic. Yeah. But, I mean, I think like the, the, the thing that was craziest to me, I went down there before production started to do, do a few rewrites with Jonathan, the director, and I was talking to them about, like, because I wrote it based on, you know, like some articles I was reading, some stuff you just make up, but it was like the whole thing is sort of centered around a community that's on a golf course that's half finished. And like, you have all these empty, all these sort of overgrown lawns and empty mm-hmm. swimming pools and all this. Right. Half There's built. a scene where a guy is painting lawns green. Yeah. That was a real, yeah. I, I, that was in some article I read. It just like, that was the, yeah, literally that was the detail that I was like, yeah, I have, yeah. you have to make a movie about this. They were just like, they were so desperate to like, everyone's trying to sell their houses. And the problem with like selling your house is like, even if you keep it nice, the 10 houses on your street are all just like being devoured by nature. Right. And they right. couldn't like plant and maintain lawns on. Yeah. And on when you say nature, you mean the desert. Right, the desert. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it's so they just were like just spray painting the other lawns green to try to be like, it's a still a beautiful place here, you know? <laughs> right. And a lot of the comedy, especially in the opening in the movie comes up from that. It's yeah. Like the, the Rosemary DeWitt's character is a real, real estate agent that's trying to sell houses in the, in a ghost town and to talk about like the promise of this place that's like right. clearly yeah it's has just no collapsing and it's just like but I, I remember like when I went down there for production I talked to them they'd like come back from some location scout and I was talking to, to the DP and he was just saying like it's amazing he's like everything was easy to find like that like mm-hmm. the, this half finished <laughs> golf course these like abandoned McMansions with the like half finished pools in the back and these big <laughs> walls in the desert you know right. everything that you kind of invent to, to like is there and then they were like we just had one huge problem which was like a key scene takes place and like what was scripted as a two-story strip mall like mm-hmm. it's a real estate office where the office is on the second floor of a strip mall with a right. with which a is kind of imperative for the yeah plot. imperative for the plot um and they were like, there are no two-story like strip malls in all of New Mexico, just none. And <laughs> yeah, it was like, up it's like the easiest thing. I mean, like you could drive, you drive around LA and you're like, yeah. you pass one every six seconds. And yeah. they were just like, there's none. We've canvassed the state. And they, we ended up, they like found a second story, like office building that could kind of mm-hmm. be made maybe to look like a strip mall. And it's like the stupidest, the thing I never thought would cause any problems was like, Right. A, a total production and headache. essential it's like yeah hard to and write there was around. no way to not yeah, do yeah. it so it was like still um, like insane to me when i watch it i'm just like this is crazy <laughs> wait so when they filmed it they did kind of own the whole neighborhood like those I, were abandoned houses no i think they were i don't think so i think they were mostly in people's houses i think there were some of the like you know i think they shot around like i think that the houses that they were actually inside were largely in neighborhoods and then some of the sort of like that golf course was and the, the sort of like collapsing tennis courts I, I believe were sort of more areas that were like 
basically abandoned Excellent. development. I mean, at a certain point, it's like the disadvantages of living in one of those towns are also the disadvantages of shooting there. Right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I again, I, I'm sort of like, I was so removed from production on it that I don't know. I, I don't know, like too much of story, uh, stories, but it was like, you know, we're not Albuquerque and it's like, they seem pretty well set up for, you know, right, right. like they seem set up for, or they had so many big movies come through there and, and the movie was written so specifically for at least the Southwest, not Albuquerque, but it was like, it wasn't Albuquerque doubling for Chicago or right. something. So <laughs> right. it's kind of like, it seemed like it was a pretty great, like great place to, to make the movie. Well, I'm, I'm curious actually about, you originated this whole idea that you're the writer of the movie. I gather you're unavailable to be there for the entire production, right? Yeah. Like, Talk to us about what it's like to like kind of give your baby away in a weird way. Whereas in TV, right? Yeah. Like you would be there the the entire I mean, it's, time. It's really really weird. Like I I I mean, the best thing is to like again write a script and then like have it sit around for eight years and just totally forget about it. Sure, and then sure. it got made and part it's of like it was a shithead so, teenager. At this yeah. Point. <laughs> Wait. So who's pushing it? You're not the one that's like saying, "Hey, read the script." No, I had sort of like when I wrote it originally, sent it out through like an agent. I had written it as I said like. I think I was just watching Eastbound and Down, so I had Danny's mm-hmm. voice in my head, and I, I thought he'd be great for the character, and so I kind of wrote it clearly as a Danny McBride character, and I was a little like embarrassed by it, but I was also like, well, I should probably try and get it to him, and, and it got to Rough House, and they really liked it, and Danny was actually gonna direct it for a while, and he'd gone, like, all those guys went to film school, and Danny, I think, I think he's talked about this, but he's like, you know, he wanted to be a director, and mm-hmm. kind of fell into acting, because sure. he was in those David Gordon Green movies, yeah, and yeah. Then he's just, just the way fit. Well, and even like well, all the real girls, all the real like, girls, oh, yeah. you see that movie, you're like, oh man, that guy yeah. is a movie star and he's just like dumb buddy number three. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's like, it's like Danny has no, like, I don't think he wanted to do it. He's just like one of the great actors of his generation. <laughs> yeah. And so then he's done it. So he's, I think he's always looked for like something to direct and then gets pulled away because he's a movie star and a, and a television star and a, in, in a billion things. And so he and I sort of worked on the script a little bit, um, and it was sort of set up and then it just, he had to go, it, it was unclear if Eastbound was going to end with season three or four. And I think they, they signed on to do a fourth season and we lost him to that because that takes like all his energy to star in and, and write and like make that television show. Um, and so we sort of like fell apart. And then when, when he came up for air, we were still talking about it, but he had a billion other projects and it just like, it kind of died as a, as a project with him. And just cause that's, I think how most people's, what happens with most movies is they, they like Peter out. Um, and so I was sort of, I just do TV and like, it was sent out sometimes like largely if I was ever trying to convince people that I could write something other than just straight comedy, I, mm-hmm. it would go out and sometimes it would find a director or someone would have read it somehow and contact me. But I kind of couldn't like, it, there was no, no one was like offering to pay me a ton of money for it. It was just mm-hmm. sort of like, people asking me to give it to them for free or something. And I just couldn't get the idea of doing it with Danny out of my head. Cause at that point it was so like, right. right so close, so close. And, 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 and then at some point he had a little break between projects. He was just like, Oh, we, we were talking as a company about what we wanted to make. And we thought Arizona would be like a fun thing to make. And he had a really limited period and it was, he didn't have time to, to direct anymore, but he wanted to be in it. You know, so they just kind of called me, and at that point, I was like, "Sure, like this is great. Like, <laughs> yeah, someone's gonna make it." It took like Neat. you know, I hadn't thought about it for two years, and someone, um, and and something was like in production like months later. You know, wow. like two yeah. months later. But to answer the original question, it's it's weird being a writer because you know, like I, I think, and I I very like I'm, I'm happy with the final film. I think Jonathan Watson, who directed it, who's worked with Danny in 
um, those guys a ton, like did a great job, but it is became immediately clear to me, you know, you're like TV and I had just, when it was made, I was coming off of a pilot that I had made where not only mm-hmm. like it's really right. was my show and you have a director, but it's like every decision goes to the writer. You know, the, the right. costumes go get approved by the writer. The locations right. are like you're on the writers are on the location scouts and every single person on the set of a television show, like the vision that they're trying to execute is the writer's vision and on and what the writer imagined when they wrote it. And you go to a film set and it's like, it's, it's just what it is. They're, the vision they're trying to execute is the director's vision and what the director imagined when they read the script, you know? And it's like the script is a starting place that they build off of as opposed to the ending place. And that's just like, you always grow, not grow up, but you go to film school and you, you're aware of the idea that like writers are bitter and writers all end up wanting to direct <laughs> and writers hate it. And then you, like I sort of ended up in TV instead of film and you're just like, I don't need to be a director. Like I always wanted to be a director. I went to film school. I thought I wanted to direct. And then you're in TV and you're like, on a, on the shows where at least where I'm, certainly where I'm an executive producer, but even before that, you you have so much the writers do the casting. You talk mm-hmm. about the props come up to the office. You're okaying stuff. Like you're the ones who are talking about the look of the show. We all like listen to music. Like you have so much input as a writer and you're like, I don't need to be down on set, like lining up shots. And I certainly don't need to be in like a scout van for three days and right. like stressing out about that stuff. It's like, I still get to like see my, you get all of the good parts of yeah, the di- good, directing yeah. or what you want to imagine. <laughs> yeah, directing writers, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you like, it's look, it's really fun to like, I think, you know, like shoot, put a sequence together is really fun. But also like, I'd say as TV writers, you're never, you're not surprised by the finished product. Like mm-hmm. everything you get to say yes or no, like the, the writing staff and the showrunners who are writers, like get to say yes or no to stuff. And so I was just like, ah, I don't want to direct. And then you, you know, you see a movie and you're just sort of like the movie gets going. And these guys were great to me. Like I, I didn't get rewritten. I didn't mm-hmm. like, you know, they made, they would make changes to the script. Like, mostly based on production concerns about the budget and what they had found location wise. But there was no, like, I didn't feel like anything but a total partner, but still they're just like, they're not calling me every like five minutes to like sure. ask me about casting and they're not, you know, like sending me photos sure. of, of like, like the location. Where's they the found. show and tell? Yeah, right? exactly. They're, they're like off, they're off making it. And I can yeah. sort of like, I get updates and I call them and we chat about it, but it was like, that's just not the, that's just not the role of, a writer on a lot of feature films, I think, you know, right. Cause I think I had as good an experience as you can have as a writer. Like they were very, yeah, kind of sounds like it. Yeah. Like collaborative and super appreciative. And I, I, I never felt like they're ruining my, my words, but you're also like, yeah, it's just, you have to sort of be like, okay, you know, like this is someone else is going to make it. And, 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 right. and like, I hope it turns out good. You know, it's interesting to hear. Um, but I, I do like, I, I do now understand why, why feature writers all end up like, wanting to direct because you're just like you know and again I had a very good experience on this movie but you know you could could easily be a bad one you could easily you know like things Mm -hmm. how you can see how especially in a world where you get rewritten by writers you never meet like how you just end up being like oh shit if I don't if I don't take control of my career it's just endlessly going to be like my name on projects that I don't that I don't want to vouch for you know right one of the first jobs I did when I moved to LA was I was a dolly grip on a short film set that David Benioff was directing. He had uh, like made 25th Hour come out and yeah. Troy, I think. <laughs> and he like really was unhappy with Troy and he's like told Warner Brothers, he's like, I, well, I want to direct yeah. this because, you know, it wasn't, it just didn't t- come out the way I imagined it. And they're like, well, you've never directed anything. Yeah. It, so he adapted one of his short stories and 
you could tell on set, like he obviously cared about the details, but he didn't care. Like it didn't seem like he enjoyed finding angles of the camera mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of telling the actors to, like hit their marks, you know, like those yeah. real there, technical things. There has to things. be a joy in getting dirty. Like the, your joke yeah. about like spending three days, you know, in a scout van, like you have to find that romantic, Yeah, you know? You have to like it. No, I mean, I, it's all yeah. very interesting, but it's also like, I think the reality is probably like also the best case scenario is just that writers <laughs> like that, that directors, the TV, uh, that the film industry learns to like appreciate writers a little more, you sure. know, because I think the reality is it's like the director should be doing all that stuff. But if you just have writers sort of like more engaged in the process and you, and you take them a little more seriously as authors of things, I think it would be better. Like everything would turn out better, yeah. you know? That's I'm, so funny. Cause I was thinking the exact opposite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that writers a, should appreciate directors more. Or, or rather like, cause you know, Orin and I've done a lot of like, uh, digital series, which kind of have a weird in-betweenness to them where, um, you know, like we'll, you'll do a Go90 show or something, yeah. rest in peace, um, <laughs> and uh, the writers don't know anything about production at all. Yeah. And so it kind of becomes a little bit more of a film model where, yeah. like, you know, I made all of the decisions on that Go90 show. Yeah. You know what I mean? And Wow. Wow. Just saying that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, ooh la la. I didn't but, go 90 no, show. Was, yeah. Who's going to be mad? There were the showrunners were TV people. They'd come from t- like traditional TV, and they were very much like that, talking to the actors on set. Yeah, yeah. You know, showing, looking at props, telling me, like, this is how this performance should happen, like being at rehearsals. But, and when I think it and I liked it, personally. Yeah, yeah, and I, I love to collaborate, so it's not, it wouldn't have been a problem no matter Man, what. It's a real tyrant. I'm a real <laughs> piece of shit. But, um, <laughs> but the thing that really it kind of boils down to is, does a writer have an understanding of production or not? Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think a TV writer, you just inherently have to, right? Like you're, for all the reasons you were describing before, you're in it for so long that like you learn. Yeah. I mean, like certainly you have to understand the, like, I, I think the best thing about TV writers are, you know, all the writers have producer credits, which is like a little dumb. It was just a way of like giving people like, or giving people promotions without giving them raises and stuff. But I, I do think like for writers, you know, I mean, I think I, th- I think about this for me, even writing this movie, like it's really helpful as a TV writer. Like you are taught to think about, think like a producer. You, you, mm-hmm. we don't write anything without thinking about what it's going to cost. You don't, you don't write right. anything without thinking about locations, you know, and that can be limiting because like sometimes I think coming out of when you step away from TV, certainly like network TV where it's so, rigid I could find myself being like oh yeah I don't have to just like I can just write like if I'm just writing a something on spec or whatever I can be like I could just like just say whatever I wanted like I don't have to like freak out about Blow that like, up but yeah. give me 50 extras who cares but yeah. at the same time I think I think a lot of you know a thing I I find again to come back to like reading people's samples and stuff is like it's troubling to me sometimes when you read young writers if you're going to hire them and you just feel like oh they haven't considered at all like the producibility of this you know, and, and because that is a that is a real skill that we look for is like to understand production and, and certainly like I think it helps in writing independent movies at least. A thing that I was really drawn to with this idea was not just that it was like a really mm-hmm. evocative location, but I was like, it's a world that can be very depopulated. You don't need a ton of extras. It's like you don't need you know, it's very it, the, the movie sort of takes place inside one gated community. Mm-hmm. It's like a it's like a a very closed off location. It didn't need a ton of stuff and it, it and is still cinematic at the same yeah, time. Yeah. And it's still yeah. cinematic. And I yeah. think like for me, I was like, I was able to write it thinking just cause you're, you're taught to think about that stuff. Like be able to write something that was at least very producible. Right. There is one scene 
And I'm curious, I guess you weren't on set probably when it was shot, but there is a scene where quite a few structures are on fire. Was that- yes, at the end there's like uh, there's a really big fire. Um, I... I sh- I'm not the person to ask about this. I saw an early cut of the movie that that you know was less impressive, before some of the uh, the fire effects were like added in post. So some of it is for sure, you know, digitally enhanced. But I think they did, like I think you know a lot of the fire looked really real, think, especially think, close up to. The yeah, I, I mean, I thought they did that stuff. They did a really good job. I, I'm sure they did some of it practically, and some of it like is some of it is sort of like done in post. But I don't have the like the proper answers. But it was like. I was very, that is the thing you write and you're like, oh boy, <laughs> like, I don't know how it's going to like, how it's going to turn out. Good and luck it, for these guys. Yeah. And I also like wrote a crazy scene in the original draft where they were like buried underground with 400 like ground squirrels, like, <laughs> like attacking in a, in a small cavern that was filling up with squirrels. Um, and then the squirrels were on fire and it was like a scene that was great. I loved it so much. Um, and the first thing when I like met with, with like with Danny and, and, like everyone with the, with the script, I was like, I mean, we have to change that squirrel scene. <laughs> you know, they're just like, I mean, that's just not, what are you even picturing? <laughs> right, like, right. like draw a picture of how this Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was just like, well, you know, and then it was a, it became a, a scene of the coyote and then the, the getting coyote, wrangling coyotes was too expensive um, and too difficult. And so the coyotes fell out of the movie too, you know. Um, that's cool. So how involved were you in selecting the director? Or not at all. I mean, I, I wasn't like I ultimately like the script had sort of. Um, I had optioned it originally to Danny, and then after like a two-year option or whatever, and I think they'd picked it up. And then when we were trying to get it made originally, and then when it looked like it wasn't going to made, it had reverted to me, um, and so I had ownership of the script. And so I was sort of just like, you know, when those guys came to me, it was sort of up to me if I wanted to like sell the script to them again or not, or optioned it to them to get it made. So they sort of presented me with a. And I was going to basically say yes to anything because I just like, again, like having Danny in it was what I was what I wanted. And, and we talked about directors, but they had this this guy, Jonathan, who, who's been he's like a like, I mean, his credits are insane. When you look at them as an as an assistant director, he's worked as a, he was like, you know, worked for like Peter Weir and just he's also been but he's largely been recently. He works with Danny and David Gordon Green and he works with um like Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, he's their AD a lot. I think he's like, and he's been sort of in and around this world of these like tonally, like very uh, daring comedies. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I think Danny wanted to, they had been looking for something to give, they felt like he should have something to direct and they'd been looking for something for him. And so, you know, I, I just sort of like, I met him, he seemed nice, he seemed like he got it. But a lot of it was, I was like, well, if, if, if Danny, if this is Danny's guy, you're like, right. That's sort of what I, cause it's such a tricky tone, I think. And, and I felt like I felt confident that even no matter who the director was, I was like, I feel like if you have Danny, I, I like, I know what that perf- main like central performance is going to be, you know? And so that was sort of like, my concern was like, I didn't know who else could do that. Yeah. I love Rosemary DeWitt. She's too. great. She, like, I mean, really she was like a late addiction. Too. She's so good in it. And like, so I, in what I, I feel like is for sure an underwritten character. Like it's, that's hard. And it's, you know, like she did brought so much to it. And do you know how it was financed? Like, did they pretty much figure it out? Yeah. I mean, they pretty much figured it out. I mean, I think those guys, I mean, I don't know how much I, I, I and I shouldn't speak for any of their decision making, you know, they, they are, 
they are guys who've like made things very independently. They've made mm-hmm. big studio things. I, I don't know how much is like a preference for how much they like to work, how much is like what the interest for something like this was. They ended up sort of financing it through this company imperative that's mm-hmm. been like has, you know, was able to sort of make it. And it's not a huge budget, but it's like, I think it was time was really tight. You know, I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the, like the, the only, all the sort of creative compromise on the movie. And there's a lot that got cut out from scripts was all just about, they just didn't have the days, you know? Right. I did notice Danny McBride has like crazy hair in it. It's like yeah. bleached blonde. Was that be for this role or was That's that for this role? That okay. was, they always had the sort of like frosted tips, like, you know, like <laughs> little Afro. That was a hundred percent. Like that was, that's, that's Jonathan, the director. He like had a vision for how he wanted Danny to look. And like, I came down there and it was like that exactly. It was great. <laughs> right. She just like kind of, unhinged Guy Fieri basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly yeah, what it is. That is as if Guy Fieri is, is chasing you around <laughs> an abandoned uh, yeah. abandoned community trying to kill you and your daughter. As if Guy Fieri is that hinged. That's the lot that's what the log line should be. It should be. Yeah. yeah. Guy uh, Fieri chooses yeah, real estate instead of food. Well no, real, do you have anything else um coming up? Oh boy. Are you pretty <laughs> No, I mean I'm, I'm, I'm we're right we're just like back to Brooklyn like right now, so we're doing season uh six of that and we're just like just i'm technically writing episode six this week and and we're sort of rewriting episode three and four in the office and and uh and you're doing press for arizona, I'm doing press for arizona and you know no it's very exciting. just podcasts you know just like podcasts yeah, just, every day just chilling out no it's very exciting nobody ever wants to talk to writers you know well we do we actually yeah. started this podcast Do you guys tell that i'm like have a real like real anger about how <laughs> how writers are treated <laughs> I've uh, never done really. like a uh, um the the uh, Nerdist 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 panel? panel. No, you I know. know. Really? Yeah, no. I mean, I don't know. I mean, like again, it's like I don't know why anyone. I don't. I don't think anyone would want to talk to me ever. Like it's a what everyone. Well, that, I mean, I guess the joke about writers is that like they don't have fans, but they have people who want their jobs. Right? Yes, exactly. I think and so true. people are like, and that's kind of. I think. I think it's largely true about most directors as sure. well. Yeah, like yes. nobody knows. Like Michelle McLaren, who you named as this kind of like hotshot, amazing director that does like the best episodes of Game of Thrones. Like I bet you most Game of Thrones fans yeah, like have no idea getting, who she is. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, but as filmmakers and people that are interested in like creative work, like it's just real fascinating well, yeah. to see how you build this. Stuff, it's very, like, I mean, TV is. writers are also really weird because, <laughs> because I mean, it's just really weird to know because it's a very collaborative thing. You know, we write sure. shows as a group and like it is very, you know, I mean, your name is on an episode. It doesn't mean you. You doesn't mean you went off and came up with the idea and then like wrote it. It's like right. it's broken as a group. You 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 figure out the story. It's part of a larger arc that was figured out as a group. You get assigned it randomly. Usually they just sort of like you go through an order of seniority. You assign out the episodes. Yeah, and, I mean it's it's fascinating, but it's it's great. We haven't actually had like that many TV writers on the podcast, so it's like really awesome to hear your perspective oh, cool. and kind of. Um, I mean, the, the only problem for me is that like whatever advice I. Like whatever advice I have for like people on TV writers, it's completely different. Like the the industry now from where it was, like whatever lessons I might have had from 15 years ago are like sure. useless. It's yeah, just yeah. an entirely different business now. Right, but I do think like if you're a director listening to this podcast and your favorite show on TV is Brooklyn Nine Nine and your dream is to direct it, um, I think hearing this might be make you realize like, oh, it's. It's probably not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it might. I mean, you know, I mean, I think it's more just, you know, I, again, like we're a network sitcom and they're very good role, but increasingly on TV, there's so many little, so many smaller shows that are like with lower budgets, but also like that are giving opportunities to people both 
behind the camera in front of the camera that who, who would never have been able to like, or who would have had to struggle to get TV jobs before who now have opportunities. And they're not always like the nice stable network TV money, but there's like intense opportunities for people out there, you know? And I think in TV directing, there's, there's like huge, you know, like, as I understand it, at least there's like huge new openings that were just like, weren't there three years Mm -hmm. ago, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, but I think like probably the best way into a show like Brooklyn nine, nine is you write some great scripts, you know, and you get them to Luke. Well, there's also, there's feeders as well, right? Like all of the studios have like their own kind of mentorship program. Yeah. We've hired a lot like that. They really, we've hired some, some people this year through like programs of theirs and stuff, you know, that's that they, they're very good about pushing their people, especially on the director side. Oh, cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for talking to us. And no, Arizona, again, me. comes out. Well, it'll be out by the time this podcast is out. Yeah. And it's available on iTunes and VOD and yeah. everywhere. You can check it out, I guess. Movies. Yeah. Yeah. Dig it. So before you leave, we're going to do our final segment, which is uh, unpaid endorsements. Unpaid endorsements. Oren, what you got? I'm going to endorse something I don't even have, but my friend has it. And my, and there are a couple, my friends have it. They're a couple. And they're so big into it. And I'm going to buy one very soon that I'm going to endorse it. You know, I'm pretty, pretty into sensible gun control <laughs> regulations, but this is a gun. It's called Bug Assault, the original salt gun. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's 40 bucks. And you load it with salt and you shoot it at flies in your house and they die instantly. Sorry to And you have to sweep to up the dark. salt? No, the salt just like kind of disintegrates. Um, they have a version 2.0 more power and greater accuracy with less salt per shot Um, it's like it's crazy and it works does the salt disintegrate or just spread out so much that it's hard to tell that you're standing in bug salt that doesn't Um, make sense to me right our friends who said it one of them has been on the podcast before Bramley um, said that they don't have to clean anything up and that it's like super effective it's like way easier than a fly swatter so um, cool. You got anything, Matt? Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, do you guys know about this company called Ben? B E N, like the name Ben. No, that's no, a horrible name for a company, though. So they do uh, product placement for indie movies. So they kind of basically play matchmaker to, um, like, you know, oh, I've got this movie Arizona, and we, um, you know, we really need money. So uh, what if you sponsored the? Uh, hair bleach that Danny McBride's character uses in the movie and then like you get a little bit of cash or maybe like in-kind sort of trades and um, it's a good way to kind of just you know find a little bit of money a little bit of resources for your movie basically so um, they like I said they kind of play matchmaker to help you with that sort of stuff and it's an acronym I think right branded entertainment network there you go Ben I just thought it was a guy named Ben experts yeah oh cool that's um, like the type of thing that like every time you're trying to raise money for an indie movie, you're like tell your potential investors, oh, and we're going to get like product placement sure, we're gonna sure. get all this. And then it never happens. It never happens. But like, you know, it, it, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But things like, you know, especially if you're doing something small, like getting coffee from Starbucks in exchange for a few tweets, like uh, could be worthwhile. You yeah. Know? So no, these guys got Jose Cuervo into Fuller House. There you go. <laughs> Pretty exactly. Cool. Their tagline is been there, done that. Mm, not bad. So uh, Ben, ben dot, just the name Ben. Yeah. yeah. Ben that, dot product placement dot com. Right. Yep. Is that the website? That's it. They didn't think the name through. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, it's branded integrate and en- en- branded entertainment network. So yep. Ben. Oh, yeah. they do stuff with Ellen. 
Um, cool. Luke, you got anything? I really don't. Uh, yeah, Are I you think... watching any cool shows, reading any good books? I've been watching a lot of 90 Day Fiance. It's great. I really highly recommend 90 Day Fiance. Where, to what any... channel is it on? Oh, God. I don't even know. I've been like, my wife has largely been buying it on, on iTunes, but it is. I think so it's you, TLC. You are, you are spending money on 90 Day Fiance. Yeah, and I, I pay for cable. I, I could like record <laughs> it, but I don't. I'm buying, I'm buying it because I missed episodes. It is. It's about like couple. It's 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 sort of, it's largely it's men and women who have gone overseas to to basically purchase, uh, not always to purchase, but to find mm-hmm. um, to meet a person, <laughs> to find uh, people to come back and marry, and they have like their on ninety day fiance visas, and so it, it's a reality show as they try to navigate those ninety days and decide if they are often going to get married and if they can get approval for the marriage and it's just like real i mean it's it's bleak in a way that i just like <laughs> i am in love with i'm sensing a, a trend or like yeah. a, i'm picking up on something in your personality it's really really terrific I, I i and i think there's been like there's there's years of it now so if you start I, no one season i that i've tried is better than the other they're all terrific but you if you fall into it and like it it's months of entertainment what kind of person is like, you know what will make this whole experience even better is if a camera crew followed me around. Like, they, they go with them? They go with them. I mean, I think I've wondered that because it obviously, like, I mean, look, like, there's no end of the people who just, what people, people just want to be on camera. Like, sure. that's just like, I, I don't think there's a lot of thought into it. But I think, like, there's a little bit of travel involved. Like, you have to, like, you know, find your way to, to Odessa to meet mm-hmm. this woman or, you know, or, like, you have to, like, the season i've been watching has this woman like you know she did go to morocco for a while to like you know like bring this this handsome young man back home with her and i think i'm sure that the show sort of pays for some of that and and i bet they also like help them navigate the visa process in a way that is i'm sure like expensive if you have to get your own immigration lawyer anyway it's terrific people will do anything for love (laughs) yeah it's not love is a very (laughs) charitable reading (laughs) of what is going on but um and uh can I do like the opposite of a endorsement? Sure. Yeah, I just sure. like, so mad at Final Draft every day, and I just would just like love it if Final Draft was a better program. Have you tried Highland too? The problem is like when you work in actual production, you can't just choose your own. Like sure, but so you but Highland two will spit out at an FTX file. I, have you I, tried it at all? I haven't no? tried it at all. I would be like, there. everyone is so like regimented on production about like what you choose to sure. use. It might be exactly the same, but it's like you know, and and the things that Final Draft does really well that the a lot of the other programs don't do well is it handles production stuff sure terrifically that is for, for, for yeah. tv shows but it's writing experiences just like i write them constantly about with complaints about <laughs> like you you can't if dual dialogue is like <laughs> can't edit dual dialogue without undueling it's so crazy it's the most simple thing that they like they could fix it so easily and they won't and it's just like it's been eight years of me being mad about this and this is my finally someone to listen to you should complain about that at John or at Craig Mazin. Yeah, know? I know. Boy, yeah. they, they love shitting on. They, yeah, on, on and they'll that. talk. They talk. They've had the final draft people on a couple yeah, times. Yeah. I mean, it's such a bad program. I mean, it just. I mean, like, and I'm sympathetic because obviously, like, there aren't that many people who actually use it. Like, it's right, like, it, right. It, it, the incentive to like rebuild it from the ground up is because it's five thousand users total of final right. draft. Right. You know, and even if even if some of those users are giant corporations who can afford crazy license fees, it's still like. There's no fine. It's not a financial business model right. that makes yeah. sense. But well, the, the owner problem. of Final Draft was on Script Notes, and he said he went to India because it's like the number one. That's their number one market is yeah. India, and he said 
uh, the entire country of India has bought like three licenses or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a hundred percent bootlegged over there. But that's the thing. You year after year, new new editions of Final Draft come out, and year after year, the only real improvements have been to like guard against piracy. Right. Which I get, and I always want to buy it, and 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 I don't want to like steal the software, but like just slight tweaks to the user experience would be great too. Right. That's oh, story cool. map, though, yeah. man. You use the story map all the time. Though. Constantly. <laughs> so helpful. And the collab tools. So if we want to find out more about you, do you tweet or anything? I, I'm on Twitter. I think it's at LDELTREDICI, L-D-E-L-T-R-E-D-I-C-I, but I'm no, I don't really ever tweet. I just lurk. Um, but, yeah, okay. watch it with Brooklyn Nine-Nine. We'll be on NBC at some is, time. Is there a type of joke that we see that we know is, like, coming from you? No. It's, <laughs> it's so, like, that's... My parents are always like, that joke, that was your joke. It's like, no, it's like, you, you no, you're can't. Like, I, I try to get that joke out of there. But even the idea that anyone pitched one joke, it's like every joke is someone pitches a structure, a joke that's funny, and then someone else pitches like a slightly better tweak on the structure, right. you know, on the same structure. And then somebody is like, or what if we added this little thing and that thing's the funniest? And then you table read it. And then like clearance says, like, we can't make fun of that celebrity. And so you change it to something else. And the joke is like, you know, it's it's a mishmash of a mishmash of influence by the time it airs it's like the idea that anyone gets anything other than like individual words through to a script is like a myth thank you guys so much for having me yeah Yeah. thanks so much you can uh learn more about the show at justshootitpod.com you can follow us on all social media through Just Shoot It Pod. You can follow me at Mr. Madamo. And me at Smitey Pileg. And if you have any comments or anything, email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. This episode was edited by Jay McAuliffe. Our producer is Madeline Rosewatt. And our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And the music you're listening to is from the artist Jazar and the Free Music Archive. Thanks. Thanks so much, Mike.